0: Well, good, good afternoon, good evening everyone, um, and uh, welcome to um, this year's Isaiah Berlin lecture. Uh, and our thanks are due to the Rothschild Foundation for kindly supporting us this evening. I'd also note that this evening's event coincides with a parallel lecture at the Hampstead Synagogue dedicated to the memory of Isaiah Berlin for a London audience, so our best wishes to them as well. Dr Aileen Kelly is no stranger to Wolfson College. She was a graduate student at this college and came to know Isaiah Berlin at that stage. Her interests have often coincided with his. Alexander hetson pluralism and freedom, optimism and pessimism. She taught at the Department of Slavonic Studies at the University of Cambridge and is a fellow of King's College there. She's the author of several books, including the 1982 Mikhail Bakunin, The Politics and Psychology of Utopianism, several volumes on Russian thinkers, and her monumental 2016 work, The Discovery of Chance, The Life and Thought of Alexander Herzen. If a university has any purpose, it must be to advance knowledge and understanding. And as many of you will know, I have spent many years as a diplomat, and the starting point for any successful policy is to understand those you are working with, their motives, their worldview, their aims. But as one watches commentary on present-day Russia, and the undoubtedly nefarious activities of some of its intelligence operatives, I am struck by a very limited understanding of, and a lack of desire to gain an understanding of, Russian thinking. Well, Isaiah Berlin understood Russia and its perspectives extremely well, of course. And as Aileen sets out well in her own books, the origins of the eschatological quest for the meanings of death, judgment, final destiny, which is such a distinctive feature of Russian thought, goes right back to the 11th century schism between the Eastern and Western churches which detached Russia from the culture of Western Christendom followed then by the Mongol conquest. And this led to that distinctive asceticism and theocratic utopianism of much 19th and 20th century Russian thought. And right up to the current day and the current controversy between the Orthodox leaderships in Moscow and Kiev suggests that understanding these patterns of thought and searches for meaning remains as valuable now as it ever has been, whether or not those patterns are reconcilable with our own. One of Isaiah Berlin's great ideas, I remember him trying to explain it on desert island discs, was value pluralism, the idea that the greatest values are not completely reconcilable. And it is arguable that this may have something to do with his own identity pluralism, that amalgam of Jewish, Russian, British identities. And I hope this college continues to live by his values of living with difference and exploring difference honestly and fairly. So I'm grateful to Aileen for, enjoying, for joining us all tonight to share her insights, helping us gaze perhaps into the Russian soul as well as helping us understand Isaiah Berlin himself. And I invite her now to speak to us.
1: <coughs> my, my earliest encounter with the inspiration for today's le- lecture was at my interview for a graduate studentship at this foundation, new at the time which will be admitting its first student members in the next academic year. Azar Berlin took over the questioning when he heard I was working on a chapter on the Russian terrorist Boris Savinkov. Had I read Winston Churchill's article on Savinkov, he asked. I had not. Um, A a discussion ensued between us on the nature and moral ideals of Russian radicalism, on which he was much better informed than I was. I remember noticing that the other interviewers around the table were somewhat bemused by all of this, Later in my first week here, he asked me to come to talk to him about my thesis, but I was, in, I was far too much in awe of him to do so, because I had, I had learned that the great and the good in Oxford tended to be very sparing at the time they were prepared to devote to discussions with graduate students. A memoir of, of, by an American scholar who began his thesis project at a different college with different traditions, I ought to say, in the same term as I became as I became a member of Wilson. Awesome puts it a rather, neutri- a rather less neutrally than that. I quote, Efforts to interest my supervisor in my research were consistently futile. Nothing, never concerned with my reports would end our, our once-a-term brief interview like a scoutmaster dismissing his troop. Well done, splendid, splendid. Do press on. Now, I, I was therefore completely taken by surprise at the end of lunch in the college one day when Isaiah made his earlier invitation into an order. Come and talk to me now. There ensued nearly three hours of an exchange of views on the characters and ideals of members of the Russian pre-revolutionary radical intelligentsia, about whom he spoke as if from personal knowledge. At the end, in an attempt to express my gratitude, I said that I'd never before had the chance in Oxford to discuss Russian thinkers in this way. Neither of I, neither of I, he replied. I can't help (laughs) imitating his speech a comment which became clearer to me as I came to understand the role played by his most respected Russian thinker in shaping his, his vision of history and freedom, one which was totally at odds with the mainstream Western liberal thought. Together with his an, uh, distinction between positive and negative concepts of liberty, Berlin's analysis of pluralism is seen as his most important con- contribution to moral and political thought. It is certainly his most controversial. Its central position is value pluralism. The notion, as John Gray states it, um, that human values are objective but irreducibly diverse, that they are conflicting and often uncombinable, and that sometimes when they come into conflict with one another, they are not comparable by any rational measure. What Gray has labelled as Berlin's I quote, stoical and tragic liberalism of unavoidable conflict with and irreparable loss among inherently rivalrous values stands in direct opposition to the do- optimistic rationalism of the dominant schools of liberal thought, basically Anglo American, and the inter- intellectual traditions that gave, gave rise to them. These have maintained that it's possible through the exercise of the rational will common to all humans to converge on on an optimal form of life that will promote the well-being of all. Where the relevant literature treats conflicts of values, it typically regards them, as Bernard Williams described in Bernard Williams' words, as a pathology of social and moral thought and as something to be overcome, whether by theorising, as in the tradition of analytical philosophy and its ancestors, or by a historical process, as in Hegelian and Marxist interpretations. Gray argues pervasively that Berlin's value pluralism is, I quote, a distinctive and novel position which subverts the the received orthodoxies in moral and political philosophy, ancient as well as modern. Berlin's radical departure from these traditions continues to attract criticism from philosophers. The most frequent objection to it can be summed up in the words of the New Zealand philosopher George Crowder, I quote, on the one hand, Berlin is proud to call himself a liberal, standing up for individual liberty against tyrannical regimes such as the Soviet Union. On the other hand, he is just as strongly committed to the concept of value pluralism. Applied to the claims of liberalism, this creates a major problem of justification. Why should we choose the values characteristic of liberalism, personal liberty, respect for the dignity of the individual, toleration, and so forth, in preference to rival packages of values, such as those of conservatism or socialism or even Soviet communism. Crowder contends that Berlin, I quote, never resolved this problem, indeed never gave it the sustained and systematic attention it deserves. In reply, I shall argue that Berlin's particular variety of, of liberalism is wholly consistent with his pluralism, and that the key to his thought on this issue is the sustained attention he gave over many years to the 19th century um, intellectual milieu, and in particular to the ideas of the Russian socialist Alexander Herzen. The principal inspiration for Berlin's value pluralism is commonly seen as the influence of Machiavelli and the critics of the Enlightenment, Vico, Montesquieu, Ramon, Herder and the Romantics who, as he himself claimed, opened his eyes to the dependence on history of the values and goals of different human societies and cultures. But their influence does not suffice to explain the most distinctive and contentious feature of his tragic liberalism, one uh, one that none of these earlier sources hinted at. His insistence that morally developed individuals must constantly face choices between incompatible goods. There exists no one right way, no political philosophy, moral system or form of society that can offer an ultimate solution to all the problems of social existence. This conclusion may be more or less implicit in the counter enlightenments of opposition to 18th century rationalism. But it is Berlin who spelled it out, stressing its painful moral consequences. I quote, The world world that we encounter in ordinary experience is one in which we are faced with choices between ends equally ultimate and claims equally absolute, the realisation of some of which must inevitably follow the sacrifice of others. Uncertainty is fundamental to our nature. We are doomed to choose and every choice may entail an irreparable loss. The difficulties of situating Berlin's thought within any specific Western tradition are often explained by his plural inheritance, Jewish and Russian. Curiously, however, his many essays on Russian thinkers, though recognised as a significant contribution to Russian studies, have been commonly overlooked as a source of insight into his distinctive liberalism, And hence to his philosophical position, but I shall argue that they are even more significant in this regard than his studies of the Counter Enlightenment. Edmund Wilson once described Berlin as, I quote, "an extraordinary Oxford dog who left Russia at the age of ten and has had a sort of and has a sort of double Russian and British personality." The the, The combination is uncanny but fascinating. He arrived in England in 1920 from a backward country in the throes of a revolution aimed at ending centuries of injustice and oppression and set in motion by intellectuals whose single-minded devotion to ideals was to fashion him, fascinate him all his life. The centrality of his work on Russian thinkers to his thought on the problem of liberty is evident from his correspondence in the 1950s, the decade in which he published uh, the four essays on liberty, which are his central contribution to the subject. In 1949, he wrote to a publisher proposing a book on Russian thinkers of the 19th century, noting that there was almost nothing adequate in English and scarcely anything in any other language on them, which, he said, is a queer fact, since their lives and writings seem to me far more interesting, even, even apart from their historical role, than those of the European or American political writers of the same period. Six years later, he refers to ongoing work on the the radical critic Vissarion Bilinsky as the first volume of his projected history on the forerunners of the Russian Revolution, which he expected to occupy him during the next five years. The project was never realised. His writings on Russian thinkers consist of independent essays brought together in a single volume in 1979, proof that the topic remained, as he described it three, three decades earlier, an abiding interest with me. What fascinated him above all was the ambivalent attitude of his subjects to Western progressive thought. All the individual thinkers he treats, with the exception of the, uh, of the writers Tolstoy and Turgenev, were socialists, whose position as the projects, uh, as the products of two cultures inspired in them a profound mistrust of Western democratic ideals. His essays stressed the way in which their Western-style education under a backward and brutal regime had left them half Russian, half foreign. Their patriotic pride, awakened by Russia's triumph over Napoleon, drew them to the theories of romantic nationalism, with its emphasis on the unique contribution of each people to the advance of mankind While the shipwreck of liberal constitutionalism in the failed European revolutions of 1848 led all but a small minority of the intelligentsia to reject it as a way forward for their country. Writing on the Russian populists who preached a socialism inspired by the native values and moral instincts of the Russian peasant, Berlin emphasises the empirical basis of their approach. They argued that parliamentary democracy and constitutional rights were of no value to a proletariat created by unrestrained industrialization. By a historical chance, Russia had not reached that stage of social and economic development. Its backwardness could be turned to advantage. It could avoid the disastrous effects of advanced capitalism by building a loosely federated society whose roots already existed in the, pe- in the peasant commune. Borrowing the methods of Western technology and science without paying the price the West had paid. While observing that the populists' faith in the potential of agrarian socialism as a a solution to all Russia's social and economic problems was much exaggerated, Berlin parts company with most liberal historians in rejecting the view that their ideal was a wholly utopian construct. And and and, he, and pointing to the ways he points to the ways in which some developing countries in the twentieth century have opted for for a mix of systems best suited to their particular circumstances. Implicit in these comments is the value of pluralism that more orthodox liberals would reject. In certain circumstances and at certain stages of development, The absolute values of liberty and equality may be fundamentally incompatible. A choice has to be made. He writes with sympathy of the leading Russian populist intellectuals who were willing, in the name of justice and equality for the vast majority of the population, to surrender personal freedoms dear to themselves. All all these contributed to his eventual position on (coughs) liberty, but his unqualified fra- praise is, is reserved for the founder of Russian socialism, Alexander Herzen. He told his biographer that his attraction to Herzen died ba- dated back to the nineteen thirties, when he was reading for his book on Marx. I went to the Russian library, and by pure I can't... Can't I? <laughs> and by pure accident stumbled on Herzen. Out of pure curiosity, I took out one volume and never looked back. He became a central figure in my life. Enthusiastic references to Helson abound in his correspondence from the 1930s onwards. To the philosopher Stuart Hampshire, he writes, I read Helson when I am not writing about Marx, and I cannot say how much I sympathise, how admirable I find his vigorous moral standards about both life and politics. A year later, he says, There is no writer, and indeed no man, I should like to be like, and write like, more. I agree with every judgement, and whenever I read In the ten volumes, almost anywhere, I become fascinated and moved at once. He declares, I feel a passion for him which is more more sustained than one's feeling about real people. A letter of 1941 refers to Heldson's memoirs, a book which altered my life and became a point of reference, both intellectually and morally. At, At the later time when his seminal writings on liberty appeared, his boundless admiration for Herzen is a recurring theme in his letters. I keep on reading and rereading Herzen, who seems to me to have been right about almost everything, including personal relations. He is utterly devoted to the memory of Herzog, and indeed think him one of the greatest as well as one of the noblest and nicest men in the nineteenth century. Indeed, there is no one, if I were given a chance, which I would much which I would rather whom I would rather have met than the whole world. I admire his person and delight in his works more, I should say, than anyone now living, certainly in England. (laughs) He intends to devote a book to him. I hope one day to construct a monument worthy of him. Certainly no such monument, excepting his own work, exists as yet. To the historian of Russia, Franco Venturi, he declares, I I really am in love with Herzen, I think, and any praise of him I take rather vaguely as praise of myself. (laughs) Now, Berlin would refer to no other thinker with such unqualified enthusiasm. Yet Helson was a socialist, deeply hostile to the Western parliamentary democracy of his time, which he saw as designed to protect the interests of privileged classes. If we want to understand what true liberalism, and more specifically value pluralism, meant for Berlin, we should look closely at why he identified so much with the thought of the man to whom, as I can testify firsthand, he would often refer in conversation as my hero. <laughs> in essays published in the 1950s, Berlin set out to challenge the standard classification of Helzhen's thought in the West as um, yet another variant of early socialism. This, he protests, is to leave out his most arresting co- contribution to political theory. This justice, This injustice deserves to be remedied. Helsing's basic political ideas are unique, not merely by Russian, but by European standards. The work he cites most frequently in this respect is From the Other Shore, Helsing's political profession of faith in the form of a post-mortem on the European revolutions of 1848. He attributed their failure to the attachment of European liberals and democrats, to a priori theories of history and progress unrelated to historical realities. Berlin supplied an introduction to the first English translation of this work, stressing the originality of Hudson's critique as a fundamental attack on the doctrine preached by nearly every Democrat in Europe at that time about the sacred duty, human duty of offering up oneself or others upon the altar of some great moral or political cause some absolute principle, capable of stirring strong emotion like nationality or democracy or equality or progress. In a subsequent essay, he explores the view of individual liberty uh, that had made Houtzen, I quote, a political and consequently a moral thinker of the first importance. His argument reveals both the tensions in his own liberalism and the way in which he approached them. He focuses on Heson's opposition to all the great teleological systems of his time, which sought to justify the use of repellent means in the name of the march of progress. To see the present as a mere stage in the ascent towards some future earthly paradise, Heson contends, is to go against the overwhelming empirical evidence that history has no preset itineraries. It is all information, improvisation, and this is no bad thing. If history were the un- unfolding of a cosmic flame, we would all be puppets pulled by individual strings. The fact that it has, quote-unquote, no, li- no libretto is the guarantee of our genuine, if limited, freedom to in- influence the present. Berlin pra- paraphrases Helmsen's argument as follows. The purpose of life is life itself. The purpose of the struggle for liberty is the liberty here, today, of living individuals, each with his own individual ends which are sacred to them. To crush their freedom for the sake of some ineffable felicity of the future is blind, because that future is always too uncertain, and it's vicious, because it tramples on human, real human lives and needs. Berlin draws our attention to affinities with liberals, such as Mill, Bangelin-Constant, and Tocqueville, in, in Hansen's view that that I quote, liberty of actual individuals in specific times and places is an absolute value, not to be suppressed in the name of, of abstractions or general principles. But he notes that Hansen passed part of company with all the liberals of his time by denying that the urge for individual autonomy is fundamental and universal. He had maintained that in positing dem- parliamentary democracy as a universal ideal, the liberals of 1848 had shown no understanding of the needs of the poor and the weak, for whom political rights were no priority. They sought to be well governed, not to govern themselves. Berlin cites Hansen's grim prediction that if mass democracy comes to the West, it will be in the form of a vengeful communism, which will destroy all the freedoms liberals hold dear. This prediction was made in the 1840s, rather early, earlier than the vengeful communism. Um, Hilton declares that Rousseau's celebrated assertion that the nature of man is to seek freedom goes goes against all the empirical evidence, a remark which Berlin notes echoed the French conservative thinker Joseph de Maistre. This observation on the part of a dedicated revolutionary has been interpreted as the expression of a temporary despair after the failure of 1848. But in his essays on liberty, Berlin gives full emphasis to the apparent contradiction between Helsin's thought and activity. Why should men be classified? This is Berlin I can convey the accent, um, uh, be classified in terms of what at most what at most small minorities here or there have ever sought for its own sake, still less actively fought for. This skeptical op- reflection Berlin says, was uttered by a man whose entire life was dominated by a single-minded passion, the pursuit of liberty, personal and political, of his own and other nations, to which he sacrificed his public career and his private happiness. I shall argue that this apparent paradox in Hertz's life and thought was actually the source of his attraction for Berlin and throws significant light on how he dealt with the tensions in his own tragic liberalism. He returns repeatedly to what he sees as the core of Helsen's concept of freedom, as, ex- as expressed in his claim, quote-unquote, the truly free man creates his own morality. Berlin explains, personal liberty is worth pursuing only for what it is in itself, not because the majority desires it. I quote, The value of freedom consists in the fact that without it, the personality cannot realise all its potentialities. Man's morality cannot be derived from the laws of history, which do not exist, nor from the objective goals of human progress. There are none such. They change with, with changing circumstances and persons. Moral ends are what people want for their own sake. Berlin observes that this denunciation of general moral rules was, in its time, original to an arresting degree. Not to be confused with the romantic rejection of objective universal values, moral creativity meant for Helmson the ability to adjudicate between their claims, the claims of these values, with a sensitivity to the demands of time and place. Berlin emphasizes his um, I quote, his unique insight into, into the inner field of social and political predicaments, his awareness that general and abstract terms like liberty or equality, unless they were translated into specific terms applicable to actual situations, were likely, at best, to inspire men with, 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 with generous circumstances, at worst, to, injust, to justify stupidities or crimes. He, inspires, he ascribes this perception to an incorruptible sense of reality, a concept which he defined elsewhere as a sense of history, a quote, which enables us to detect the relationships of actual, actual things and persons. Acquaintance with particulars, while all theory deals with attributes and idealized entries, idealized entities with the general. Bernard Williams has remarked on Berlin's powerful sense not shared by all philosophers, of the reality of the past, as 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 the, fo- as the foundation of his value pluralism, noting the, p- the parallels between his thought and the belief of some philosophers of science that scientific theories cannot be understood except in terms of their history. Something Berlin B- B- says something which Berlin Berlin himself believes about anything that he finds really interesting. In this context, it is significant that Hudson was trained as a natural scientist at Moscow University and was much influenced by the new evolutionary theory that was replacing a static vision of the universe with one of constant change, erasing the boundary between the development of nature and the development of mankind. Observation and experiment, methods characteristic of the new science of evolutionary biology, with the basis to the, of the approach to history that he outlines in From the Other Shore, uh, his, uh, the, the, the book which made such an impression on um, Berlin, he remarks that modern man has become, uh, quote, hideously rational, interested only in the universal, the ideal, the idea, humanity. We have wasted our spirit in the regions of the abstract and general, we have lost our taste for reality. This generation has been, he says, misled by categories not, kept, not designed to catch the flow of life, whose embryogenesis, he points out, do not, does not coincide with the dialectic of pure reason. Ideals never materialise in the shape in which they float in our minds. Part of everything that takes place in history is influenced by physiology. Such reflections are the leitmotif of Herzl's essay, and I think it's safe to assume that they helped inspire Berlin's distinctive notion of the sense of reality. He makes clear that Herzl's position was not an attack on reason, but only on its misuse. It, hit, I quote, it, it hits both right and left, against, against Romantic historians, against Hegel, and to some degree against Kant against utilitarians and against supermen, against scientific and evolutionary ethics and all the churches. It is empirical and naturalistic, Recognizes values that are absolute for those who, who hold them as well as change. This description can be applied equally to Berlin's own philosophy, which, like Herzen, he was forced to defend against charges of inconsistency leveled by left and right alike, Thus he concludes the essay, Two Concepts of Liberty. These are all long, long quotation; that worth, worth quoting. It may be that the ideal of freedom to choose ends without claiming early validity for them, eternal validity for them, and a pluralism of values connected with this is only the late fruit of our declining capitalist situa- civilization, an ideal which posterity will regard with little comprehension. This may be so, but no sceptical conclusions seem to me to follow. Principles are not less sacred because their duration cannot be guaranteed. To, re- to, re- to realise the, the relative the, the validity of one's convictions, said an admirable writer of our time, and yet stand for them unflinchingly, is what distinguishes a civilised writer from a barbarian. The writer in question is Joseph Schumpeter, but it is too handsome that Berlin repeatedly returns as a living example of the unflinching acceptance of moral tragedy as as expressed in thought and action. Heldson recognised that his own ideal of individual freedom was the the product of privileged culture. The masses to whom it had brought only suffering would have no compunction in destroying it. But he faces this prospect with resignation. He says. To me, these losses are proof, are proof that every historical phase has its own virtue, its own good, peculiar to it, alone, that perishes with it. In a century dominated by deterministic philosophies of progress, of Hegelian or Marxist varieties, Helson had prophesied the same fate for socialism. I quote, Socialism will develop in all its phases. This was in the 1840s that he, he, he made this prophecy until it reaches its own extremes and absurdities. Then once again a cry of denial will break forth from the titanic breast of the revolting majority and again a a mortal struggle will begin in which socialism will play the role of contemporary conservatism and will be overcome in the subsequent revolution as yet unknown to us. End end of quote. um, co- contrasts these lines with the idyllic vision of the end of alienation in Marx's Communist Manifesto, published the year before, this, this quotation from um, He. And he and Berlin says, was much more consistently dialectical, dialectical than the so-called scientific socialists who swept away the utopias of their, of their rivals only to succumb to millennial fashion, fantasies of their own. The historical process has no culmination. Human beings have invented this solution only because they cannot face the possibility of endless conflict. The whole of Helson's thought, he writes, is the notion that basic problems are perhaps not soluble at all, that all one can do is to try to solve them, but that there is no guarantee that happiness or a rational life can be attained, in public or in private life. From the other shore and Berlin's essays on liberty both emphasize mankind's deep and enduring resistance to the reality of moral tragedy and the sacrifices involved in its acceptance. Heldson insists that to accept that there are quote-unquote no solutions, no final answers to human problems, demands a painful sacrifice involving the whole personality. The surrender of certainties which in religious or rationalist forms have been a source of hope and comfort throughout human history. It is time, he says, to put on trial all our notions about the citizen and his relations to other citizens and to the state. Revolutionaries are prepared to make terrible sacrifices, but will they go so far as to renounce their own faiths if these do not stand up to empirical scrutiny? This is the whole point, he says, to surrender what we love if we are convinced that it is not true. Such passages from what Berlin described as Helsen's great polemical masterpiece are close in style and substance to his own reflections on mankind's what he calls mankind's deep and incurable metaphysical need, the urge to escape the from an untidy, cruel, and above all seemingly pur- pur- purposeless world into a realm where all is harmonious, clear, intelligible, moving towards some perfect culmination, where nothing can be the object of criticism or complaint or con- condemnation or despair, where there is no choice, there is no anxiety, and a happy release from, from responsibility. We escape moral dilemmas by denying the reality. The strength of admiration and affection that Berlin expressed for Hudson in his letters and conversations owed much to the consistency with which a personality with striking resemblances to himself had succeeded in living by an unqualified acceptance of the reality of endless moral conflict. Berlin presents Hudson as an epitome of that developed personality for whom personal freedom is key value. Highly civilised and with a wide culture, he, uh, I quote: "Helps him delighted in independence, variety, the free play of individual temperament. He desired the richest possible development of personal characteristics, valued spontaneity, directness, distinction, pride, passion, sincerity, the style and color of free individuals." End of quote. Um, Berlin describes him as an as an entrancing talker, quoting a contemporary's description an extraordinary mind which, which darted from one subject to another with unbelievable swiftness, with inexhaustible wit and brilliance. He coupled subtle observation with encyclopedic knowledge to such a degree that his listeners were sometimes exhausted by the indistinguishable fireworks of his speech, the in all inexhaustible fantasy and invention, a kind of prodigal op- opulence of intellect which astonished his audience." End of quote. Those who knew Berlin personally would, I think, agree that this description could equally well apply to him. Both men were immensely gifted individuals whose talents could develop only, only within an advanced culture, permitting a high degree of personal freedom. But what linked them as well was their very unusual readiness to accept the validities of other ways of thinking and living. Berlin writes of Herzog. What made him unique in the 19th century is the complexity of his vision, the degree to which he understood the causes and natures of conflicting ideas simple and more um, more fundamental than his own. John Gray remarks in similar terms on the links between Berlin's Berlin's personality and conversation, which, which are extraordinary, I quote, in their powers of imaginative empathy, and his thought, which continually... Uh, Affirms the validity and nature and uh, uh, reality and validity and human intelligibility of values and forms of life very different from from our own. Hilton's devotion to another absolute value, justice, led him to dedicate his life to a cause of which his ideal of freedom was not an essential component. Berlin believed that such an unavoidable Conflicts of values might be minimised by, pres- by preserving with- between them an uneasy equilibrium which is constantly threatened and in constant need of repair. Helmson's anarchistic social- Russian socialism could be seen to represent such a precarious balance between the equality of the, pre- the peasant commune and the ideal-, ideal of personal freedom. But towards the end of his life, his hopes of even such a trade-off of values were crushed by the masses' resistance to the propaganda of the populist intelligentsia. (laughs) Berlin-Hertzen responded with letters to an old comrade, addressed to his Russian fellow socialist, Mikhail Bakunin, whom Berlin describes, which Berlin describes the letters, as perhaps the most instructive, prophetic, sober and moving essays on the prospects of human freedom written in the 19th century. This is very high praise for an almost unknown work which has never been translated into English, but it is easy to understand why it made so strong an impression on Berlin. It conveys the essence of the dilemma of tragic liberalism as as lived experience. Herzl asserts that although he he and Bakunin are pursuing the same goals of freedom and justice, they differ on the question of means. Faced with the lack of revolutionary spirit in the masses, Bakunin believed that it was the role of intellectuals like himself to make their revolution for them. You rush on ahead as before, writes Heldon, with the passion for destruction, which you take to be a creative passion, smashing down obstacles and respecting history only in the future, whereas I try to understand the human step in the past and present, not lagging behind and not going so far ahead that people... Will not and cannot follow. Bakudin's sort of revolutionary, Hesin argues, believed that a new world could be built only through the total destruction of the old. He took no account of the Russian peasants attachment to their customs, traditions and religious faith, and their reverence for the Tsar who was the, who was the source of their oppression. The conservatism of the masses was a power even more formidable than the power of church and throne ignorance, irrationality, and lack of development could not be overcome by force. To say, do not believe, is as authoritarian and as absurd as to say, believe. With Peter the Great's forcible westernization of Russia and the French Revolution in mind, Hilton protests, why must civilization through the whip, liberation through the guillotine, be the eternal concomitants of every step forward? The alternative, Heltzum proposes, is slow and painful, with no guarantee of success. To attempt, through a prot- protracted process of persuasion, to reach a compromise between the values of the masses and the westernized intelligentsia, he asserts that he is not afraid of the word gradualism. Debased by liberals, had used it to justify inaction. To utter such words in progressive ser- circles, he, admi- he reminds Berlin, Bole- Bacuni. Uh, requires, if not more, than certainly less, than certainly not less, courage and independence, than to adopt the most extreme of extreme positions on all questions. Berlin concludes that, unlike Bakunin, Helson had confronted genuine political problems. I quote: "The sad disparity and conflict between many equally noble human ideals." the non-existence of objective, eternal, universal, moral and political standards to justify either either coercion or resistance to it, the mirage of distant ends and the impossibility of doing wholly without them. I suggested earlier that his fascination with Herzog sprang from the apparent conflict between the life and thought of a person who believed that mankind in general did not love freedom but nevertheless dedicated his own life to its pursuit. Hence the importance he gave to Helson's final confession of faith. The person to whom he referred so often as his hero provided provided living proof for the principle underlining his liberalism, that humans could live a coherent, consistent and admirable moral life based on acceptance of the incompatibility of ultimate values and the absence of a rational pattern in history in history, without, without succumbing to skepticism, relativism, nihilism, or political apathy. To sum up, um, Berlin's commentaries <coughs> on Nelson's thought can be seen as providing a powerful response to the mo- most common criticism of his own value criticism and value pluralism that he gives us no objective reasons for preferring the values characteristic of liberalism to those of pro- rival political visions. He would, I believe, have responded along with Helson, that such general demands are wrongly formulated. He contended that Helson's moral and political genius lay in, go- gasping, in grasping in the anticipation of much 20th century thought that, I quote, all general, all genuine questions are of necessity, Intelligible only in specific contexts, that general problems such as what is the end or the meaning of life are not answerable in, in principle because the questions themselves are misconceived, because ends, patterns, meanings, causes differ with the situation and the outlook and needs of the questioner and can be correctly and clearly formulated only if these are understood. This was Berlin's answer to those who have argued that he did not accept that his pluralism deprived liberalism of a universal justification. Such a pluralism is certainly inconsistent with the sort of Cold War liberalism that has been attributed to him, the crusading kind for which negative liberty uh, was appropriate not only for those who already possessed it, but also for the subject peoples of the Soviet Empire. Surely this is not the the Berlin one can recognise from his admiration for Herzen's respect for the beliefs and values of the subject peoples of an earlier empire. As he and Bernard Williams once asserted in a a debate with George Crowder, pluralists will not be that kind of liberal. He defined his own kind in his citation from Schumpeter, continually re-emphasising it through his enthusiastic championing of Herzen's basic theses, among them the view that most humans throughout history have placed other values above freedom. He once said in a recorded conversation in a sense I am an existentialist, that is to say I commit myself or find that I am in fact committed to constellations of certain values. A remark to be interpreted in the historicist sense of Herzen's assertion that the truly free man creates his own morality, a defence of moral autonomy, entirely compatible with with acceptance of the influence of culture and inheritance in forming our beliefs. Berlin's liberalism was shaped by the Anglo-Saxon culture in which he spent most of his intellectual life, where where the rival values of liberty and equality were commonly reconciled if only through uneasy compromises, but his Russian inheritance made him acutely sensitive to the predicament of those faced with more, much more difficult choices. Hence his admiration for what he describes as Helzen's, I quote, unique sense of reality, in particular of the need for and the price of revolution. For all his sympathy with the di- di- liberal dilemmas of the writer Turgenev, he compared Turgenev's fundamental scepticism unfavourably with Helzen's passionate involvement in the tragedy of chance. In his time and historical context, Berlin was a liberal. It's not inconceivable that in other times and and contexts he might have been a socialist. Berlin's essays on Heldsen were written more than half a century ago. It can be argued that subsequent political events in Europe have so greatly discredited the faith in a predetermined march of of progress towards an optimal society and a a perfect life, that Helmson's ideas have no more power to to surprise us. Yet when his essay on on From the Other Shore was republished in 1979, Berlin added a postscript asserting that in the intervening period it, it seemed to him that the inter- in, the in the intervening period, it seemed to him, nothing had happened to uh, lessen the relevance to our own times of Helson's analysis of the search to escape from the burden, burden of freedom. In his essays on liberty, he had indicated an incipient form of this syndrome, whose full blown d- development we now see in recurrent global financial crises a pseudo-sociological mythology which holds human lives to be controlled by vast, impersonal and sinister entities such as slumps, booms and inexorable behavioural patterns which make life more precarious but as a form of compensation, divest their victims of all responsibility. If we lose freedom of choice, at any rate we can no longer blame or be blamed for a world largely out of our control. We lose those neuroses which spring from the fear of having to choose among alternatives. Berlin has been likened to a latter day Job, demolishing the metaphysical certainties to which humans turn for creation, for consolation. But his identification with Helson's central ideas makes it clear that his tragic liberalism is not to be confused with pessimism. He once wrote of his hero that. I quote, a curious combination of idealism and scepticism, runs through all his writings. The same combination in his own work gives it an energising quality, conducive to the belief that, in his words, there exists a limited but nevertheless real area of human freedom. There is a quotation from Leon Bloom, in which he may never have known, but which I believe he, and Heldson equally, I think, would have been happy to promote as an indication of how to act on that freedom. I quote, Pessimists are just spectators. Berlin began his professional career as a philosopher, and it is as a philosopher that he is most widely known, thanks to his re- re- treatments of liberty and of, and of pluralism. But in the most productive post-war period of his research and writing, he was more often regarded as an intellectual historian. And his change of direction from nineteen thirties Oxford philosophy towards the history of ideas was responsible for starting those ultimately philosophical developments in his thought. Of course, it's possible to say that this change always belonged under the general he- heading of philosophy, as an unusually and a philosophy, as an unusually penetrating philosopher, and f- observer, and friend. Said of him once. He had merely moved from a form of philosophy that ignored history to a form that did not. Yet several times in his post-war letters he he expressed the opinion that as a historian of ideas he was isolated. Unlike what he found in leading universities on his regular visits to the United States for public lecturing and intellectual refreshment, there was nobody to talk to in Oxford. It is worth remarking that this is a sharp echo of something From close to a hundred years earlier. In his published memoirs, the Reverend Mark Patterson, who eventually, after various struggles, became the uh, the rector of Lincoln College, makes exactly the same point about himself after his work had turned to intellectual history. Oxford may change, as we all can probably admit, but never without due deliberation. Change and deliberation are still the facts of life in Oxford. But their speed and details have altered somewhat in the last 50 years or so, arguably for the little the better. The overall explanation obviously involves many factors. But in our present location this afternoon, it was excusable to be a little immodest, just a little, by suggesting that an important three-part three factor in the whole history has been the existence, the influence... and the the example of this college during the 50 years since I I joined as a graduate student, and that the essentials of all three parts will always be remembered as resting on the efforts, the example, and the personality of its first president.
0: Thank you very much for a remarkable presentation to us. Um, May I just say a few words um, on behalf of Dr Kelly uh, before I offer a few of my own. So, Dr Kelly would like to acknowledge that her lecture this evening has benefited from the enthusiastic support of her late husband, Professor John Campbell, who brought to this project the lively interest he had always shown for Dr Kelly's work, a gift for humorous touches and his own warm memories of Isaiah Berlin. And I would just like to add that the humor was definitely there in the way in which you brought Isaiah Berlin to life. And I hope somebody was recording the way in which you spoke in the language of Isaiah Berlin. (laughs) Um, there's somebody in the front
1: row who could do that um, we were once caught doing it as we (coughs) came into a room clearly
0: clearly was a habit Um, but I think this has been a, a lecture that has given us enormous personal knowledge of the subject enormous depth of understanding of the subject and of the 19th century and enormous love for the subject And I think that has come through and shown itself very, very strongly. I love the reference to um, the intellectual fireworks of his speech as a description of Herzen, but also of Isaiah Berlin. Um, And the phrase that came to me in listening to this sometimes was that Isaiah Berlin was not just somebody who described the 19th century, but actually seemed to inhabit the 19th century. He, He is as part of... The intellectual landscape of Russia of the 19th century as the people who were there themselves. And I think, Dr. Kelly, you have brought that forward very, very clearly this evening, and we're all very grateful to you for that. Thank
1: you. <laughs> 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 I I'm very grateful to have been given a chance to speak in this college. It meant a great deal to me, and uh, it still does.
0: Wonderful.